This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Speech. I'm from the group Arrested Development, founder of the group. I do rhymes. I started off as a DJ when I was 13, so whatever year that was. And now I'm MC, of course. Still a DJ. I produce, produce a lot of our sounds. Probably start with Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. Public Enemy pretty much blew me away with their first album, Yo Bum Rush the Show. And that album was very unique to hip hop. It had a lot of live instrumentation to it. It had this rock song, Sophisticated, B-I-T-C-H was on the record. It had definite hip hop foundation, but it was going some places that was reminiscent of punk rock and rock and just very hard and unorthodox and so when that record came out it was very fresh very different to everybody that liked it and even the album cover of yo bum rush the show was just very unorthodox you know they're in this dark room it's this light they're surrounding this table and you don't really know what's going on you feel like maybe they're just some underground situation but then they're on def jam so there's just all this curiosity surrounding the group they weren't stunning like they didn't have glasses on and like the ladies around them and and what you really couldn't even see who was in the group really it's just this weird situation chuck d's voice was absolutely deeper than anybody's had ever been in his genre and and his his level of authority lyrically was something that felt unlike hip-hop you know usually our hip-hop heroes were people that reminded us of us you know, it's like people like us, you know, they're our age. This is like our music. But then Chuck D felt like an adult when we was all young. And he felt like somebody of authority, but fly, you know, it was, it was cool. So after this record, Yo Bum Rush The Show came out, it did pretty well on Def Jam. I don't think it hit any charts, though. So then they released a single next. And it's this next record. Everybody that was in the Public Enemy, because you were sort of cool if you knew Public Enemy, because it wasn't like LL Cool J where, you know, everybody knew him, all the girls was into him, the guy loved him, thought he was rhyming great. Public Enemy was more like a tastemaker thing. It's like, yo, do you know about Public Enemy? Yeah, I do. Yo, you hear that Yo Bum Rush The Show record? Yeah. So then here comes their next single. Everybody who knew about them was looking forward to this single. And it's this record called Rebel Without A Pause. And just to back it up, Chuck D had talked about a lot of stuff on the Yo Bum Rush The Show record. He talked about, look out y'all, I'm a time bomb. And he's talking about some concepts that had never been brought up in hip hop. Talk about 
Black Panthers and Chesamar, and it's all these people. It's like these socialist revolutionaries, and it's stuff that was way above the heads of most average hip hop dudes. And you know, we were all either born in the '70s back then or the late '60s. I was born in '68, so a lot of the '60s concepts of Black Panther Party and civil rights in, in, in its deepest forms and a move organization and all of these things that COINTELPRO, all of this stuff, we weren't hip to none of that stuff. So Public Enemy was talking, he was hinting at it on the first album. So Rebel Without a Pause comes out and I tell you the truth, the first time I threw on the single, it starts off, brothers and sisters, culture. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what this world is coming to. And we're like, okay. And it's bent, bent from Boogie Down Productions. So we're already like grabbed in. Okay, what is this? Yes, the rhythm, the rebel. Without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling? You know it's time again. D, the enemy telling you to hear it. They praise the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show, bum rush the sound. I made a year ago, I guess you know, you guess I'm just a radical, not on sabbatical, yes to make it critical. Okay, that right there. When that sonic presentation comes in, the rebel, the rebel, without a pause, a lower in my level, a hard rhymer. Okay, let me just, I, I'm trying to set, I'm trying to paint the picture. Never in hip hop music. Had anything like this been done, it was absolutely unorthodox. Here's this sort of like a teapot kettle. It was irritating. You got to know, before that, hip-hop was either trying to be soul like James Brown, or it was trying to be stripped down like Run DMC, Suck MCs, or LL Cool J, I Need a Beat, or Rock the Bell, stuff like this where it was like, just raw 808s and snares and throw in a few little percussive records or something like that. Maybe just throw in on the one and you know on the one of every beat. Brand! That was it. It was very raw and that was sort of our statement. But then this record, unlike all of that stuff, everything that came before it, totally broke the mold. This teapot kettle feel, which at the time we didn't know where exactly it came from. Now we understood, but it's like what in the heck is this? It's this unorthodox, rebellious, energetic groove. And in his voice, so commanding, it was less mysterious and more straightforward. Really breaking it down who he is, and then Flavor Flav explaining who he is, like he's his side man, like this dude is the baddest dude you'll ever hear. It felt like probably how people felt when they saw the Sex Pistols live back in the day or something. I mean, it just felt like, man, this is music. This is youth movement, rebellious, powerful music. Then, to take it even further, that other go-go sample that they had in there where Flay's like, yo, Chuck, you know what you're doing? You know, a little breakdown. That just took it there because it just... It built the song up for Chuck to lay the next level of deepness, dopeness, and authoritativeness on the listener. Radio suckers never play me. All the mix, they just okay me now. No one ain't grown when they're clocking my phone. There's no sneaking and taking everything now the brother owns. My calling card recorded in order. Where was I at when this record first came on? I don't remember exactly where I was, but I know I was in Atlanta. And I know that after that, I wanted to be done with rap. Because I was like, ain't nothing going to be fresher than this. I might as well give it up, man. We was already Arrested Development, too. I remember that. And we was trying to do our thing. You know what I'm saying? And it was like, golly, this is so hot. Lyrically, Chuck D brought the complexities of life to the forefront. 
and young people was able to research. We all had to research. Like, who in the heck is this? The first record, Yo Bum Rush the Show, inspired us to research some of these people he was talking about and see who they were and have a little bit more depth to our presentation. And to me, Public Enemy was hip-hop music personified. The power of hip-hop music personified. And uh, Rebel Without a Pause, just to this day, it's just classic, absolute classic hip-hop music. Tables turn, suckers burn to learn. They can't disable the power of my label. Death Jam tells you who I am. The enemy's public. They really give a damn. Strong Island, where I got a wildin'. That's the reason they kill me now. Never silent, no dope, getting dumb, no claiming where we get our rhythm from. Number one, we hit you and we give you some. No gun, it's still never on the run. You wanna be an S1, Griffin, tell you win, and then you come again. You know what time it is, if he's the president, pulling out my ray gun. Zap the next one, I could be a showgun. Don't last a minute, soft and smooth, I ain't with it. Hardcore, raw bone like a razor. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, very um, divided city, racially. Blacks lived in one area, pretty much the ghetto. Whites lived, some lived in the ghetto, some lived middle class, many lived upper class, of course. But the blacks was all concentrated. But then my family, who came from the ghetto, when they got an opportunity, moved us out to the suburbs. So here I am, I'm born in the suburbs, and loved it, beautiful, storybook, very, very pretty, but we were the only black family in the neighborhood, and so all of our neighbors did not like the idea, now, mind you, this is like the early now, the early, late 60s, early 70s, put it in perspective, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 68, that was the year I was born, and so when I was two, 1970, still a lot of racial tension, when I was six, 1974, Still, racial tension like ever. And so I remember my older brother having fights and losing, unfortunately, to gangs of what they called greasers back in the day. It was white gangs, and, you know, they would terrorize us. I remember when I was a young kid, probably about eight, my next-door neighbors, uh, like I said, all of us, all white families at this time, would come to our house and paint swastikas on our doors and burn crosses in our yard and destroy our playground. Like my, my brother and I had a swing set and a slide and they would break the slide in half and knock over the swing set. And then one, one day I came home from school, in grade school, and somebody had again painted swastikas on our screen door, front door, and our back door. And on our walls we had brick Say so spray painted swastikas on our wall, spray painted get out of here, N words, so on and so forth. We had a front living room window. They had smashed it open, came in, took our living room furniture from our living room and put it on top of the roof. So I come home from school, my parents are at work, and I see this vandalism of our home. So of course I'm scared to go inside. We have already had some racist attacks prior to this so I was scared I didn't know what to do I called my dad and my dad came and straightened it out with the neighbors found out it was our next door neighbor again I did this so my childhood was filled with dreamlike storybook reality of a suburban community in Wisconsin Milwaukee but racism coexisting with that Over the years, I would develop a bigger and bigger sense of the scope of racism and how ugly it is, where in my neighborhood, I would experience friendship with my white friends like that were my age. And yet those friends would call me nigger. 
and I had no clue that it was derogatory until later. My own friends. And when I first found out, I remember when I first found out that being called a nigger was a bad thing. It stripped me of all the good memories I had of my friends because these were the people I trusted and loved as a kid. And the whole time I realized that they were saying things that was meant to demean me. And it just crushed me. And it, it sort of um, wiped away the good feel I had about my neighbors at the time. And then I felt such a camaraderie and a, a community feel when I went to the ghetto. And yet they didn't have a lot of the amenities that I was used to. In the ghetto, we would hang out and we would have fun. It was around black people, so I didn't feel any racism per se, but I definitely felt poverty and I felt dysfunction that I didn't have in my family and some of my friends' families where either the father wasn't there. My mother and father were together until I was 10 at least, and prior to that, they were together. My mother and father owned a business. A lot of my other friends' families was regular working-class families, so mom and dad was gone until a lot later in the night or whatever and didn't have the various amenities, couldn't get this toy or that toy like I could get. You know, it was like things that I didn't really understand. So I think that a lot of the music, even that Arrested Development ended up doing, especially me as the lyricist, would have this sort of sense of a vagabond, sort of traveling from one place to the next and not necessarily feeling at home at any one of these various places, but feeling like a little piece of home in all of those places, but not thoroughly home. A junkie walking through the twilight So I started rap crews when I was in Milwaukee doing my thing, DJing. I started DJing when I was 13. My dad owned a nightclub called the Fox Trap, and I would be the youngest DJ there because I had to be there with my dad. There was nobody at home. So after school, when I got into high school, I would go straight to the club after school, do my homework, hang out with the DJs, chilling out. They'd be getting promotional records. I'm peeping out the records, vinyl records promotion only stamped on the backs and just checking out music. I would stay at the club, especially on the weekends, and watch the club and just close up with my dad two, three in the morning. When I finally left Milwaukee, it had gotten violent. A lot of welfare programs was being offered in Milwaukee that was extremely lucrative. And some people that was sort of the worst of society would come to Milwaukee unfortunately to take advantage as opposed to use the welfare system would take advantage of it and they'd have a system they'd be taking it welfare in chicago here and then they'd be taking it in milwaukee and they'd be just working a system working a plan and not really working a job at all and so it was that type of character of people that would start to have a big influence a lot of people that were selling drugs in in uh, chicago and in detroit realized that milwaukee was an open totally open spot we could take over there with no problems and they did they came in they was more violent than people we was used to and they just was able to come in and and wreak total havoc by the time i was a senior in high school by then there had already been gunfights and everything even at my parties you know what i'm saying so i was like man let me get on up out of here try to get to atlanta i heard atlanta's the land of opportunity i want to go there and see what's going on i know my
So Atlanta was cool. It was exciting because I remember first coming to Atlanta and it was a black Mecca. It was like a little slice of Africa. And black people was more diverse. You had poor blacks, but you also had rich blacks. And you had middle-class black families. And I, I didn't feel like it was, like in Milwaukee, we was rarities, being black and middle-class. And then Atlanta was more, you definitely saw a lot of black middle-class people, upward mobility. I loved it. It was an amazing city, a lot of culture. You know, I wrote the song People Every Day in Milwaukee. And what I express in the song, I was resting at the park, blah, 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 and I got the dreads, I got these different clothes on. And the brothers want to make fun of the fact that I don't have a jerry curl. The brothers want to make fun that I, that I didn't look like the status quo black dude in Milwaukee. So coming to Atlanta, it wasn't like that. You know what I'm saying? You had a lot of dudes with dreads, you had a lot of people with jerry curls, but you had a lot of people with everything you know everybody was expressive and, and and the world was just different and i felt like wow i could fit in here i could do my thing without being such an outcast or a misfit like i express in people every day Creatively, Milwaukee was conducive for creativity because of the frustration. Tennessee was written in Milwaukee. And same with People Every Day, you know what I'm saying? Some of our hit songs, Mr. Wendell, was written in Milwaukee because of the frustration. But Atlanta had more freedom, and it felt alive. There was a renaissance going on, and black consciousness was jumping off. People were really trying to understand if you was black, you was trying to understand where you come from and things that slavery had really stolen from us as far as a knowledge, a general knowledge of our history, a general knowledge of the achievements that we've done as a people. These things are subconsciously important to any person's existence or someone probably doesn't know exactly how important it is unless they don't have it. It's almost like someone who was adopted and someone who has parents may not like their parents. Like, man, I wish I didn't know my mom and dad. But they, they say that loosely because they don't know how it is to not have a mom and dad. Well, it's the same for a black person who didn't understand anything of worth that, that their people, even though you have no control what skin color you're born into this world with, nobody does. But when you grow up with that skin color and you look in the mirror or you look in the books and there's nothing of worth that the books say your people contributed. Or if it is something that they say it contributed, it's negativity. Black people bring ignorance, violence, lazy, shiftless, negative, thieves. When I came to Atlanta, you saw just this different variety of people. And it's like, wow, we did offer a lot more than, than I understood. And the whole black is beautiful thing was for a reason. It wasn't for separatism. It was for self-confidence that we've still to this day really lack to a large extent, ironically. And even some of the huge self-confidence that hip-hop displays is really in response to the deep insecurity that's really there. Even the riches and the, the flaunt and the money, all of that is because we didn't really have those opportunities. Uh, same with all the girls and all the flashy clothes. All of that stuff is really rooted in deep insecurity as opposed to security. Atlanta was a very different place musically. 
it had a legacy already. You know, a lot of R&B bands like Cameo, Otis Redding, James Brown came from Atlanta. So you knew that there was legacy there musically. But hip hop, it was only sort of my a take on Miami bass style music. So it was real fast, 120 something beats per minute, 808s, kick snares, right? And you'll notice that even today, stuff that comes from Atlanta still has that same basic 808 patterns, but just using more melodies with the 808s, but it's slower now. That's sort of the, the, the Atlanta sound that was there. But there was a renaissance with consciousness and it, it was partially coming from New York, but I think it was partially coming from black colleges where people from all around, you know, Africa, from the New York area, from L.A. was all coming to the, the black colleges. Clark, Morris Brown, Morehouse, Spelman, all of these places was clustered up together. So you had people that was coming from everywhere sharing ideas. And with those ideas came a different level of consciousness and beauty to be honest it was it was beautiful because people was rocking different styles that came from their consciousness when we got dreads it was uniquely black okay let's embrace ourselves. and so dreads started popping up afros and puffs and all types of just different styles and, and vibes you know was starting to pop up and so it had an influence on the music Black man, time to make a stand, time to wake up and time to make a plan and band together like China. We need to find a better form of unity than we'll be in the right path, on the right track, darker light black. Don't let him tell you it's wrong to fight back. Come on! But the enemy is not your brother. It's that other motherfucker. The one that faded, robbed and degraded you. And he don't like to see you made it through the bullshit that came with being a brother man. Stolen from the motherland, placed in another land. 400 and some odd years ago. Till about the time we were Afro. We've come so far, so fast from what they called the past. But that just passed and with the last in line for justice. What's this now, nah, man? That ain't gonna work. Yo, bust this black to the future, back to the past. History but I think is a mystery. Music as far as Arrested Development is concerned. Coming where I was from, from Milwaukee, experiencing the things that I experienced, we brought a different twist to it. It was more of a Southern experience, and it was more talking about the rural South. I think musically, we was trying to get on some of that type of vibe. Being in the South, there was a whole other aspect that New York never really jumped on. Being from the South, there was this spiritual aspect. You know, you have to understand the black church. And I say the black church, it was a church at first. But during slavery, blacks weren't allowed to do anything with whites. So the black church developed as a way to, number one, worship God. But number two, commune with one another. The black church became a political slash spiritual reality. So you'll find in our music, being influenced from the South, there's more of a spiritual take on everything even with tennessee one of our songs it's like lord i've really been real stressed you'll never hear chuck d talk about the lord or god or you'll never hear pretty much new yorkers talk like that they don't go on that unless it's islam lord i've really been real stressed down and out losing breath although i am black and brown problems got me pessimistic brothers and sisters keep messing up why does it have to be so damn Honestly, when I wrote Tennessee, which was in Milwaukee, when I wrote Mr. Window, which was in Milwaukee, and People Every Day, which was in Milwaukee, it was after already spending time in Atlanta. So I graduated high school, moved to Atlanta, and started Arrested Development in Atlanta. My mom and dad helped me with my rent during the time of trying to jump off Arrested Development while I was going to school at the Art Institute of Atlanta, which is where Arrested Development started. I met Headliner at the Art Institute of Atlanta. And long story short, my mom's like, if nothing jumps off in two years, I'd like you to finish your schooling. So after two years of not getting a deal, I went back to Milwaukee 
wrote a bunch of stuff. So it was after having had two years in Atlanta of experiences, life, the spirituality aspect of things. So it's sort of like this melting pot of my experiences in Milwaukee being sort of dissed and not understood, mixed with an enlightenment. Three, that's a magic number. Three. It's the magic number. Three. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community was born three, they stubborn me, and that's the magic number. Difficult preaching is posthumous pleasure. Pleasure in preaching starts in the heart. Something that stimulates the music in a measure. Measure in the music raises three parts. Casually see, but don't do like the soul. Cause seeing and doing are actions for monkeys. Doing De La Soul. Man. Yo, this song right here, three, the magic number, blew my mind. Just like Public Enemy, it was one of those rude awakenings of what hip-hop could be because prior to three feet high and rising there really hadn't been anybody to sample as quirky as music as de la sampled they sampled the turtles they were sampling schoolhouse rock on three is a magic number prince paul did one song on stetsasonic's second album in full gear their second album was called in full gear and he was one of the members of stetsasonic the dj he did one song called something like the crazy mind of prince paul or something it was on their second album and on that record he used this really ill i don't even know where he got it from but some like kids record that he scratched in but prior to prince paul doing that to my knowledge i never remembered anybody taking such a bold go where no man has gone before approach to digging in the prince Prince Paul, De La, started sampling stuff that was off the charts for us. You know what I'm saying? Rock and hippie stuff. And it was like psychedelic stuff. It was just totally different. And yet, it felt very urban and it felt very fresh and unique. The rhyme styles that they was doing was 100% fresh. Nobody had thought of doing it in such a non-braggadocious and non rap way and just like they spoke in the records they said that we're just speaking as opposed to rhyming and that's how i felt it was a totally different concept and to mix in these quirky songs with incredible scratching and incredible diversity so you knew that they really cared about the record just you by how much records they threw in you know you look at three as a magic number it's got that joint from Schoolhouse Rock, which is like the meat of it. But then he's got stuff from Chris Rock samples thrown in there. He's got all of these other just sources just thrown all up in the record and all matching the same concept of three. It was just brilliant. Doing hip hop hustle, no rock and roll, unless your name's Brewster, because Brewster's a punk. Parents let go because it's magic in the air. Criticizing rap shows you're out of order. Stop looking, listen to the phrase of Fred Astaire's, and don't get offended while Mace Dosi does your daughter. A dry camera roll system is now set. Fly around the store under Daisy Productions. It stands for the inner sound, y'all, in your Quebec, that the action's not a trip, but show me the function. Everybody wants to be a DJ. Everybody wants to be an MC. But being speakers are the best, and you don't have to guess. I think Magic Number is perfect because it was a great brand orienting song. It developed the brand of De La Soul. De La, just like Public Enemy, was very mysterious. Prior to Three Feet High and Rising, nobody really knew what they looked like unless you were from New York. So the singles back then on Tommy Boy was just a single with a, with a hole in it. And so, you know... There was no album artwork. There was none of that stuff. No singles artwork wasn't really popular in hip hop. Low budget type stuff. Just throwing the singles out and seeing if they stick. Long story short, nobody knew what they looked like. We didn't really understand who they were. So it was like to see these cats by the time the album dropped, 
you really started to get their whole brand. And three, you really realize, okay, it's three dudes, okay? It just was, it was just totally right. It just felt right. This year piece of the pie is not dessert, but the cost that we dine. And three out of every darn time, the effect is, mmm, what a daisy grows in your mind. Showing true position, this here piece is kissing the part of the pie that's missing. Where that negative number fills up the casualty. Maybe you can subtract it. You can call it your lucky partner. Maybe you can call it your adjective. But odd as it may be, without my one and two, where would there be my three mates passing me? And that's the magic number. What does it all mean? It was punk rock. It was rebellious. It was bold. Because hip-hop had the whole veneer of you had to come hard. You're from the streets. You know what I'm saying? What? You better come with it, you know, or, or stay home. And here's these cats. They came hard, but it was in their own way, and it, it felt punk. It felt totally against the grain in the right way. You know, it was similar to what Beastie Boys did when they first came out, where it was hip-hop, and you knew it, but it, it, was a, it definitely was a cousin to punk rock music. It just was very rebellious in its own way. And I think that that was the perfect rebel message musically, they were a perfect rebellious message to put out in hip-hop at that time where everybody else was getting harder and harder and harder they wanted to broaden the perspectives and yes run dmc did stuff like walk this way and they had the rock influence with rock box and all of this stuff but they lot took it way further than just rock they sort of broke the barriers of music everything was game now everything from schoolhouse rock to say no go you know it's like disco to you name it you 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 could do whatever you want now let's get right on down to the skit a baby is brought into a world of pits and if we could have talked that soon in a delivery room and would have asked the nurse for a hit the reason for this the mother is a jerk excuse me junkie which brought the work of the old into a new life what a way but this what a way has been a way of today anyway push couldn't shove me to understand a path to a basic because someone should have raised it in a Honestly, I picked those two records, P.E. and Dela's records, because on both sides of them is sort of what anchored Arrested Development. It's like, Dela let us know we could do whatever we wanted to do. Would we do exactly what they did? No, but we would do whatever we wanted because they said it was possible. P.E. was on an intellectual stimulus of activism. I think that those are two records that really sort of helped us to understand what could hip-hop be? What are the possibilities? And then we could stretch it further than that, which is what I believe we did. Because Def Jam and a lot of the stuff that was out back then had a, a similar brand to it. You know what I'm saying? Simplism, we do not sing. That was sort of like something that Run said in one of his records. We don't sing. That was sort of the thing. No melodies here. And they had to make that statement to separate hip-hop from R&B and from just disco music and stuff that was out in the 70s. They had to make that stamp of look at what we're doing. And it was different. Whereas De La was making a whole nother stamp. Like, yo, we're going to bring in the Turtles. Check, we're going to bring in French records. And we're going to bring in records for children and freak it still. And, and come with good rhyme skills, a great show, and a great presentation. And people are going to feel us. And we did. We all felt them. In fact... I reached out to uh, Paz before Arrested Development ever got a deal, and I sent him three records. I sent him Rainy Revolution, Mr. Wendell, and maybe Natural. I was so impressed with this brother because he wrote back and said he, he didn't really have any juice at Tommy Boy. They was already starting to have problems at Tommy Boy, and there was nothing he could really do, but he, he gave us love, and it was like, yo, I really like y'all sound, though. And for what that did for me as a producer and rhymer, I was like, and influenced me and inspired me to keep going. So I, I, I appreciate those guys. Checking you out when you're all alone. No one is clocking you, but I'm scoping you. Staring right through you, staring into you. Your beauty is endless, and I'm hoping to explore. Brothers say you're ugly, but I disagree. But in a way, that's fine with me, because I want to travel with you. Travel in your mind, you see, like a virgin. Free as a wind blows, tall as a tree blows. Wild like nature, that kind of a feel. Hair is natural, lips are natural. Face wins first place, you appeal to me, girl. Let me ask you for some time for us to 
want to rhyme together, etc. I have nothing but pure intention. Everything will be really natural. It would be a minute before we really realized that we was going to be a household name. But I know when I realized we blew up. We were on tour. Touring our album. And we was in a van. And we pulled up in Carolina somewhere, one of the cities. And there was a line around the block for the venue. And we was trying to find parking to get into the venue. So I asked my road manager, who was also the driver, and I said, yo, who are we opening for tonight? And she said, nobody. This is, this is for y'all. And the line was literally wrapped around the block, not just down the block, around the block. The place fit about 500 people, and at this time they had let anybody in. Around the block, people were lined up to see us. And I realized we have made it. <laughs> we have made it. Arrested Development is, we're here. It was absolutely blood rushing and exciting to see the line around the block and to know that they were there to see you because we had been waiting for this. This was something we weren't scared of at all. It was like, bring it on. We've been waiting for this moment. We've been waiting for y'all to want to see us because we wanted to see you too. Let's do this. And that show was absolutely bananas. Here, have a dollar. In fact, no, brother man, here, have two. Two dollars means a snack for me, but it means a big deal to you. Be strong, serve God only. Know that if you do, beautiful heaven awaits. Asked to pull my rope for the first time. I saw a man with no clothes, no money, no plate, Mr. Wendell. Ask his name. No one ever knew his name, cause he's a no one. Never thought twice about spending on an old bum until I had a chance to really get to know one. Now that I know him, to give him money isn't charity. He gives me some knowledge, I buy him some shoes. And I think blacks spend all their money on big colleges. Still, most of y'all come out confused. Go ahead, Mr. Wendell. Definitely, I felt that there was a, a confusion as to what Arrested Development was about, and especially the depths of what we were about. To this day, we have people come up to us and say, you know, I loved those songs, like not even just the singles, but a lot of the record, but I never knew what y'all was really talking about. If they got older or something and listened back again, it's like, dude, y'all was saying some stuff. But I think the best example of that experience was Karis One. Me and Karis One became friends, and he calls my house one day and leaves a message. I wasn't there. He left a message on my machine. And he's like, yo, speech, speech. This is Chris. Yo, yo, I just heard Tennessee again. And speech, I, I'm telling you, I didn't even understand the depths of that song. This song is crazy, Speech. The world is the world wasn't ready, Speech. I'm from New York, Speech. I didn't know what that song was really about. I'm, you know, and blah blah blah. And his bigness of Karis One and all his glory was left a message on my machine, and I'm like blown away because I love Chris. I love his music. I'm a huge fan. And for that moment, for him, that artist, to say, "I get it." But it was 10 years after the record was released. Makes me realize that there was millions yeah. like him. Lord, it's obvious you got a relationship. Talking to each other every night and day. Although you're superior over me. We talk to each other in a friendship way. Then out of nowhere, you tell me to break. Out of the country and into more countries. Fast eyes work. Into rhythms where the ghost of childhood haunts me. Walk the road my forefathers walked. Climb the trees my forefathers hung from Ask those trees for all their wisdom They tell me my ears are so young Go back to whence you came My family tree, my family land For some strange reason it had to be He guided me to Tennessee At that time in New York New York had a, a lock on hip-hop Other than the West Coast, pretty much And so I think a lot of our visuals threw people off we're in the deep rural South. And I think for a lot of New Yorkers, that was a past that they wanted to forget. Now mind you, they may not have even seen it before because if they were born, if they were born in New York, they didn't see the rural South. But they knew about slavery. And what that meant to them was picking cotton, baling hay. For them, they looked at it as oppression, slave massa, house nigga, all of this just negative connotations. 
when they saw our visuals, some people didn't totally understand what the group was, what the, the vibe of the group was trying to put out. And so I think a lot of New Yorkers, unfortunately, was especially a lot of the straight hip hop heads from New York, which Karis One is 100% that. I wasn't rhyming the same way that hip hop was used to rhyming. So, you know, we're used to, bam, you must learn. Just like I told you, you must learn. In history, deal with straight up facts, no mystery. Teach the student what needs to be taught. Cause black and white kids both take shorts. When one doesn't know about the other one's culture, ignorance swoops down like a vulture. Cause you don't know that you ain't just a janitor. No one told you about Benjamin Banneker, a brilliant I mean, but we was getting love. You know, at the same time, we got a lot of love. So a lot of New Yorkers did understand. And a lot of New Yorkers was thoroughly feeling us. But a lot of the center of hip-hop culture did not. Source never loved us. They did an article on us because they had to. And even in the article, it's like, I don't get this, but obviously some fans do. So here's an article on this group called Arrested Development from the South. Never gave us a lot of mics, never liked the record. It felt like we was just sort of a quirky little interesting thing coming out from the South. Never thought we was legitimate. But at the same time, we got crazy love. It, it came at people in a way that made them curious. And it, it didn't feel like... It was blame, blame, blame. It felt like, try to understand my heart. Feel my heart on this situation. And even if you couldn't understand every single lyric, even the melodies and the music was, was expressing that. Feel the pain, feel the heart of what we're trying to say. And I think people got it. If you would have been with us about a week ago, we were in, I don't know, maybe Charlotte, on this 20th anniversary tour, and I found out that uh, Mary J. Blige just released a single called Everyday People. And um, Jermaine Dupri produced it. And it used our sample. It used, whoa, and all that stuff. I was telling my wife, I remember making that track in, in my bedroom, in my apartment. And 20 years later, people are still remaking this joint. And I know that that happens to other people, but I don't care. For me, that is a freaking miracle. I love it. I'm so grateful for it. I just feel like it's a kiss from God. You know, I feel like I feel like God carved out a little bit of this world just for me. And there's a couple of songs, three songs, four songs that will forever go down. Even though I feel like I've done better stuff since. It doesn't matter. Those songs will always go down as classics for years and years to come. To me, that's just a blessing. I don't think it's a great I thought it was the dumbest religion ever. I, I grew up with it, but I thought it was powerless. Everybody's whining and talking about God doing this, that, and the other. I liked African religions more. I studied Yoruba. I studied Islam. I studied Hebrew Israelites, five percenters. I studied a lot of this other stuff. And ironically, I met a woman that was a Christian. She was broke. She was unorganized but she was confident as ever about Jesus Christ. And she started inviting my wife and I to church. And long story short, we finally came after many months, I should say, of turning her down. Some people at the church asked me to look at the scriptures and study it out with them. And I think out of pride, I said, yeah, I'm down. You know, I was down for a fight, good debate. And after really reading thoroughly about what Jesus's life was and what he taught and what he promises for those that believe in him and follow him, it convicted me. I had tons of questions. I was not an easy sell by no stretch. 
But what I liked about the people I was around is they knew their Bibles very well. And they weren't afraid of any question I had, whether it's a race-related question, political question, or a spiritual question, or a religious question. Coming from a pessimist, which I was. So I had a lot of pessimistic questions, not just nice questions about religion in general and the whole nine. And I liked the fact that they were patient, answered the best they could, and then sent me on journeys to find even more. And then I was, I was convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he was, that he existed, and that he died. And then he was raised in from the dead. Riding with my top down, listening to this Jesus. Yeah. Back on the grind again. I know it's been a little while, but it's time again. Folks ask the great when you gon' rhyme again. I'm like, hold up, give me time, my man. See a lot of things change, some stay the same. I'm from H town to D town to Memphis, man. One thing it's a show everywhere I go. People call it any self money, cause the closure. They talk about it all the time and put it in their song. They drive around and play it loud like it ain't nothing wrong. And all they talk about is simple stuff. Got everybody acting bad, thinking that they could do it. And they trying to drown me out, but now they ain't gonna count me out. Since I became a Christian, I started serving in the ministry, counseling people, helping people stay faithful. Any way I could serve, I was just there. And so over about six years of doing that, the church said, speech, we would like to ordain you. So we did a ceremony. They ordained me, and ever since then, it's been amazing. I get to perform wedding ceremonies, and I still do all the rest of the stuff I was doing prior to becoming an ordained minister. Counseling various people with marriages and non-marriages. My wife and I helped to lead an arts ministry of awesome artists and entertainers. And I wrote a book called What is Success? A spiritual book about what God considers success. Most people, when they talk about success, they talk about it from a CEO's perspective or a billionaire or millionaire's perspective. And this is from a spiritual and biblical perspective. What does God actually consider success? Hip-hop definitely matters. It's the music that was against all odds. It was the mustard seed that grew into a huge tree that gave shade for the whole world. It was the very thing that was doubted in the beginning that ended up being undeniable in the end. The entire planet has been converted by hip-hop. There's not a country or continent I've gone to where hip-hop has not transformed the youth of that country. On a spiritual level, the Bible talks about God will take the little things to shame the big, the unwise or foolish things to shame the wise. To me, hip-hop is another example of that. To me, that's, that's why it matters. <laughs>